Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Intelligence Matters ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. This is Intelligence Matters with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morell. Brought to you by Lockheed Martin. Your mission is ours. A career national security official. Nonpartisan, nonpolitical, and you've made the decision to run for Congress. Why? Honestly, I feel like it's an all-hands-on-deck moment. What's happening internationally and domestically requires all of us to be more actively engaged. Ultimately, I was convinced that the, the voters want someone who understands what's at stake when it comes to national security. Do the folks in your district understand the significance of what the Russians did, or do you have to end up explaining it to them? I don't think they understand the granularity of it, but they know something went wrong. Some people have come up to me and asked, are we out of the woods? Should we be worried about this next presidential election? And my answer to that is, we are not out of the woods. The intelligence community reported on to the American people, but I feel somehow has gotten lost, that the media is not covering it. Evelyn Farkas was Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Russia, Ukraine, and Eurasia in the Obama administration. She also served as a senior advisor to the Supreme Allied Commander of NATO, to the Commander of the U.S. European Command, and to the Secretary of Defense for the NATO Summit. She was also a professional staff member of the Senate Armed Services Committee. But after a long career in national security, Evelyn has decided to run for Congress from the state of New York. I just sat down with Evelyn to talk about her decision to join the political fray. We'll be right back after a word from our exclusive sponsor, Lockheed Martin. I'm Michael Morell, and this is Intelligence Matters. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Evelyn, welcome 
Thank you. Thank you so much. It's great to have you on Intelligence Matters. And more (laughs) importantly, it's great to see you again. Likewise, likewise. This is great. So maybe the place to start is with your background. And what I'd love to know is how did you get interested in national security? How did you get interested in Russia and Eurasia? Can you kind of talk us through all of that? Yeah, yeah. So I like to say I come uh, I come on my interest in international affairs honestly. I come at it honestly, meaning I was the child of Hungarian refugees. So as you know, because you're part Hungarian. Yes, I am. <laughs> I have um, both my parents left Hungary after the 56 revolution. So they were fleeing communism, came here with nothing, had to start over again, learn English. I didn't learn English actually until I went to kindergarten and I was four years old. They moved out to Westchester County, which is a fantastic place to raise a family, excellent public schools. That is really what I credit my success to, really the fact that they moved there. Um, Of course, coming to America was the first start. And, um, And I just was really schooled growing up on the bad history that we had had and primarily involving Europe, World War I, World War II, the Holocaust. How did they talk about what it was like to live in communist Hungary? Oh, I'm, well, they didn't have to explain it because I also experienced it. So when I was two was the first time it was safe for them to go back. And then they went back a couple of times, you know, as I was growing up. So I actually went and visited my grandparents and they would say, don't speak loudly in front of that lady. She's living in, they divided my grandparents' house up into apartments. And, you know, because that was what communism was about. No one should have a bigger um, home than anyone else. And one of the ladies they put in the house intentionally uh, was spying. She was reporting to the government on our conversations. And if you can imagine little kids running around right. would say whatever. Um, you know, probably I was about 10 at the time that they told that to me. So I knew very, very clearly that there was not freedom to say what I wanted, even as a 10 year old under communism. I saw the economic disparity at that age. You know, we would bring huge suitcases full of everything. I mean, jam, Levi's, of course, that was legendary, but, you know, all kinds of um, medical things, you know, aspirin. I mean, communism was not a good system. It was repressive, right? You didn't have freedom of expression. You couldn't say what you wanted without fear of going to jail. And then economically, it was horrible. I mean, ultimately, it collapsed because of both things, really. But the economic one was something everyone felt. And what was it about their character, right, that led them to say, we're leaving. We're, we're going to find a better life. Well, so in part it was uh, not character. It was just the circumstances they were born into and raised under, which is to say that they were considered intelligentsia. So they were educated. My father, because he was already 31, 30 when he left Hungary. My mother was younger, um, but she came from a middle class family. Um, and so, again, uh, had property also in my father's uh, case. So they were already considered suspect enemies of the state. They were already relegated to lesser jobs. My father, who had been a lawyer, trained to be a lawyer and a judge, was doing manual labor. Then he got it. He was lucky enough to get an office job. But when the revolution broke out, he participated. He was there when the, the protesters took over the radio station. And he knew that when the Russian tanks came back, because the reason people could escape was the Russians left. That the small Russian military contingent that was there was defeated by the protesters. But the Soviet Union was going to come back. And so everybody took the opportunity before the Soviets came back to leave. And my father was one of those because he recognized that when the Soviets came back, they were going to say, oh, that guy was there 
you know, participating in the protests. In my mother's case, it was they knew she, her parents knew she would have no future economically under that system, and they wanted her to have a future. And they actually, my grandparents stayed behind with two very young children, and their other four children left hungry. The two girls together, my mother with her sister and her sister's best friend and the parents. That, I can't even imagine, you know, telling your, my mother was, I think, 17 at the time and her sister was 16, leaving them in the care of someone else to cross an international border, not knowing if they would see them again, you know. Um, but but my grandparents, you know, on both sides, my on my father's side, the, his, only his mother was alive, but they understood, they wanted their children to have freedom and they were very educated. So I think that was part of what motivated both my parents. So did your parents' experience and your own experience, um, does that influence how you think about immigration? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, first of all, you know, people who are fleeing their countries, they're not doing it. I mean, they're doing it out of necessity, either political necessity or economic necessity. And the one thing we learned coming out of World War II was that we had done a grave injustice to many people, first and foremost, the Jewish people who were fleeing a Holocaust in Europe. And they came to our shores and we turned hundreds of them away, thousands probably. I don't, you know, I don't know the actual number, but you know, that was a that was a crime. And after the Second World War, as you well know, we we United States, we were at the vanguard of setting up systems so that we wouldn't commit those international crimes again, that we wouldn't inflict further harm and damage and death upon people. So I believe strongly in international law. If people want to seek refuge in the United States, they should have the opportunity. We will process them. They may not be actually able to stay in the United States and and live here because they may not meet the criteria. But there is a fair system in place. I think we need more people. We need more money. You know, we need to man the border better. But I don't think the answer is to be hostile. All of the immigrants who have come to the United States have contributed greatly. We are a country of immigrants. And actually, if we want further economic growth in America, we better be taking more immigrants in. So your interest in in national security comes from that experience. Can you talk a little bit about your career then, your your time on the Hill, on the Armed Services Committee, and then your time in the executive branch? Yeah. So I'll I'll start a little earlier because... You know, I said I learned about this horrible history. I went to graduate school at the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy. There's these great books called Horrible Histories. Have you ever seen them? (laughs) No, but... (laughs) They're they're for kids, and um, they're particularly for boys to get boys interested in history. But they're they're, they're all the gory stuff of history, right, in this this kind of comic book format. But it got both of my boys interested in history. Anyway, Okay, I have five nephews. I'm taking notes. And (laughs) I have also five godchildren, and there are boys there. Um, So what... What I did was I went to graduate school and I determined to study diplomacy because I wanted to prevent all this horror. And I studied ethnic conflict and nationalism. And the crazy thing was while I was in grad school, the the war in Bosnia came to an end. And I had an opportunity to go as a human rights officer in the immediate aftermath. And one of the things that really sort of marked me deeply was that experience because I went on exhumations, which, you know, they dig up the yeah. bodies in, yeah. these, in these sites of the war crimes where people were murdered. And I saw, you know, the the thing that I describe as mo- most vividly, because it, it's the thing I never forgot, was seeing among the bones and the dirt this pink parka of this little girl, like probably six years old, who had fled with her family, you know, into the forest and was killed in the forest with her family. So that, again, I was like, we are the strongest military power in the world. 
when I go to Washington, which I did, as you said, subsequently, I'm going to work so that American military might keeps us safe and keeps the world safer. We need a strong military in order to do that. We need deterrence in order to do that. So I worked on the Senate Armed Services Committee, as you said, for seven years for Carl Levin, drafting and passing legislation as a senior staffer, was involved in all kinds of discussions, including his no vote on the Iraq war, interestingly. Most people don't know about right, that. Right. Yeah. And then he had an alternative resolution, which was to give more time to the inspectors. Right. Um, and then I and then, as you said, I went into the administration and my last job, I was working for President Obama as deputy assistant secretary of defense for Russia, Ukraine, Eurasia which, you know, is in the headlines now. I did not anticipate when I took the job. I thought I was just protecting Eastern European democracies. And it turned out, no, I was actually working on our defending our democracy as well. So here's the here's the fundamental question, right? Yeah. A, a career national security official, nonpartisan, nonpolitical, and you've made the decision to run for Congress. Right. Why? You know, I I never would have foreseen this. If I thought about it, maybe like as a retired person, I might have done something political, if anything. Um, Honestly, I feel like it's an all hands on deck moment. What's happening internationally and domestically requires all of us to be more actively engaged. And I literally was in Tbilisi, Georgia, Republic of Georgia about a month ago or no, feels like a month ago, September, woke up at four in the morning thinking, what if this president gets reelected? What will I do? Because I dis- disagree with him deeply on everything. And I think he's dangerous for our country. And so I said to myself, I'm going to get involved politically. I, I, because what I had been doing up till then, as you know, was um, think tank type work and right. working on MSNBC as a contributor. And I thought, that's not going to cut you it. You were like doing what I'm doing. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Which is important. It's explaining to people what's at stake. It's helping them think through what their positions are. That's very important. But I suddenly thought, I could do more. I, you know, if he if he wins again, I'll do more. Well, literally two weeks later, my representative, my hometown representative, Nita Lowy, announced that she was retiring. And so I, it started a whole process because friends of mine, I told them, you know, proudly I had my plan B for if Trump wins. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so ultimately I was convinced that the the voters want, and not just in my district but elsewhere, they want someone who understands what's at stake when it comes to national security. It's not the fundamental reason they elect someone to Congress, but it's an additional reason. So there's a pattern here. You're not <laughs> yes. you're not the first um, national security person to run for Congress, and you're not the first female national security person. So we have Alyssa yes. Slotkin, we have Abigail Spanberger, mm-hmm. right? We have all these people who had a career Mikey in Cheryl, national security. I just <laughs> exactly. So is there something special about women? from national security who have decided to run for political office? Or am I making too much of that, do you think? I, I don't know if the gender part matters. Um, you know, I, I'd have to think about that a little bit more. But certainly national security people, because I have to, you know, hasten to point out my friend Tom Malinowski, who ran successfully from New Jersey running again, Jason Crow. Um, so there are a host of um, men, as um, uh, Max Rose from New York also. So there are a host of male national security um, experts. So I think it's probably more that national security people who, as you said, have tended to be nonpartisan and mainly because what's at stake on the national security front, we have all agreed across the aisle on w- what the fundamental principles are and what the what the objectives are. But for the first time, we've seen a president where he's caused sharp disagreement. I mean, he's really overturned what we considered sort of the 
the consensus um, among Republicans and Democrats. And so that, I think, has galvanized a lot of us to say, wait a minute, like he's actually overturning the entire order of things. It's not the how we do what we do. It's what. You know, we disagreed, let's say, when I worked for Carl Levin with President Bush about how we achieve, you know, a safer world, right? But we didn't disagree that we needed to be part of NATO, that we needed to work with allies. You know, there were a lot of things that we agreed on fundamentally. So how do you talk to, and I know there's a lot of other issues, right, that are extraordinarily important to people, you know, their jobs and their health care and all that kind of stuff. But you're kind of special because you've got this national security background. And I'm wondering to what extent the folks that you talk to in your district and who you are trying to get to vote for you, how interested are they in the world? How interested are they in what America is doing in the world compared to all those other issues? Yeah. So the electorate in my district is actually very interested in how we are behaving in the world. But more importantly, I would say, first and foremost, they are interested in how our world approach, how our foreign policy impacts them, right? So the environment. Uh, My district has the Hudson River running through it. People in my district are very concerned about rising water levels, about sewage overflowing into their properties and also into protected areas, right? So marshlands. So it's, it's, important to them as a first order uh, issue, right? And when I go to fora, I'm, I'm actually quite surprised because people will bring that up almost immediately. The other thing is that this president has fomented a great sense of insecurity, economic insecurity, but also he's done nothing about gun safety. He's threatened to take away our health care. He's eroded women's rights. So that fear factor, I think I, I address it by saying I want to reinstate, I want to protect the American dream. The American dream is a positive thing. Don't be afraid. Your government can actually help you, right? We will protect your democracy. We will protect your right to a rule of law. And at the same time, we'll provide you with some economic security by, for example, a public option in health care. So I try to address the fears that the president just likes to stoke by kind of speaking about it as a positive agenda. Were there factors that as you thought about running, were holding you back from making that decision? Were there, were there downsides? Yes. So I spend a lot of time, I mean, I'm sure you've heard this from other people you know in this town who run for office, um, calling people up, asking for donations. It's a very weird thing. Yeah. It's like a, running a startup business, but you're asking people to invest in your campaign. Um, there's no pot of money that people get right from the beginning. So I basically hire a team of experts, you know, very dedicated, hardworking people. I don't pay them right away because I have to first raise the money. It's it's So that's an odd aspect of it. I don't really like it very much. But, you know, it does bring me back in touch with old friends. So yeah. that's a positive yeah, yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> By the way, I don't like making phone calls and raising money either. I, yeah. I, I would find that extraordinarily yeah. difficult. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, it's for like a it. good cause. It's, yeah. you know, I, I'm really going to work my butt off and defend democracy and yeah. economic opportunity, but yeah. So maybe we could uh, shift a little bit and talk about some national security issues and then come back again um, at the end to, uh, to the campaign. But maybe the place to start is with Iran. Mm-hmm. Sort of your thoughts on that. Yeah. I mean, look, my my thought on it is, and I, I don't think this will surprise you because y- you know how this works in government. When you conduct an attack of this nature, of this magnitude, of this kind of um, import, right? Uh, it, 
taking this guy out was was a really big move because he was not just a military leader. He was kind of like a, a minister of defense and a minister of foreign affairs, you know, and a military leader sort of rolled up in one, right? And so we should have had a plan, first and foremost, to address any backlash, but it should have been embedded in a greater strategy of what we're doing in the Middle East. And just like the, the you know, two times that the president announced we were withdrawing troops from Syria, um, it's, it seems to be a one-off, you know, kind of helter-skelter move. And these are really dangerous things to do because we are now at risk. The Iranians, they, they you know, attacked the two bases with missiles, right? There was a loss of life, in, in a significant loss of life in the takedown of the Ukrainian aircraft, which, you know, is just horrible. Um, the Ukrainians and the Canadians, uh, the huge loss of life of all the people on board. Um, so my biggest beef with it is that I'm, I'm not moaning, bemoaning or, you know, mourning the death of the general. It's just that it was done in a way that was not well thought out. And ultimately, it brought us closer to potential conflict with Iran. Now, it looks like the Iranians stepped back. But again, you know, war should be a last resort. We should do what we can to deter and punish if necessary, but manage it. We're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsor, and we'll be right back with more of our discussion with Evelyn Farkas. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. So Evelyn, the one thing that I struggle with on the Soleimani strike is this question of whether there was intelligence, mm-hmm. right, about right. the Iranians planning significant attacks against U.S. facilities in the Middle East. And I say to myself, gosh, if that intelligence existed and somebody put it in front of me and the interagency concluded that the best way to disrupt these attacks and save the lives of a couple hundred U.S. service members or U.S. diplomats was to take this guy out, I'd raise my right hand and say, I'm all in. Right, right. So how do you think about that piece of it? Yeah. So I agree with you. I think if there was really an imminent attack being planned on American citizens, absolutely, our president, that would have been a very viable option. And if taking Soleimani out, if, if the intelligence community determined that that would have foiled the attacks, then I think it's warranted. Um, The problem is that as we heard from members of Congress, including Senator Mike Lee, who's a Republican, uh, that is not the case that was put before members of Congress when they, unfortunately, after the fact, informed them because there's a long tradition of telling key leadership, uh, you know, the, the, the top leaders of Congress before right before you take an action like this. Um, you know, I was on, on the Hill and I remember very clearly how that worked. And my boss would know things before anyone else would know, right? Um, it, was, it was not just a courtesy, it was smart because Congress pays for these things. They pay for the missiles. So my, my perspective on it is that if that intelligence did not exist, if there was not clear, clear intelligence that was, you know, we had a high degree of confidence in, right, to use intelligence terminology, that that again made it much less 
justifiable internationally, which again puts America at risk because the other part of this is that we didn't inform the allies in advance either. So you talked about the need for a strategy in the Middle East. What would that look like? Well, first and foremost, it would be a vision of how we want to put an end to the war in Syria, how we want to create more constructive relationships among the great actors in the region. It would be mainly a diplomatic effort. I mean, what this administration has done has is to focus on putting pressure on Iran only. Um, frankly, you know, molly coddle is the word that comes to term, but basically cozying up inappropriately to the murderous Saudi regime, um, even though we need Saudi Arabia. But but again, the way we've approached Saudi Arabia has been inappropriate. Um, the way we've approached Iran has been to withdraw from the nuclear deal, which did put a break on their program and put additional pressure on Iran with the idea being that somehow Iran would cave and we would get a better diplomatic deal, except that there there has been no plan as far as I can see to bring Iran to that negotiating table to get that better deal. All we did was put Iran's back to the wall, ratchet up the tension. You know, it resulted in back and forth military action and no no greater security for anyone in the world. So let's go to your favorite country, Russia. <laughs> so you were you were actually at the Pentagon when we were being attacked, when yes. our democracy was well, being Well, actually I had left after the okay. electoral attack. Okay, so this but country, I understood you, it. yeah, <laughs> this this country that you've you've been following yeah. your entire life, right, attacked our democracy, and they're still at it. Talk a little bit about why they're doing that. Number one, and number two, what should we be doing about it that we're not? Right. So Vladimir Putin, sitting in the Kremlin, he would like a sphere of influence. He'd like to go back to the Soviet system. Why? Because he likes the economic you know, system of the corrupt economic system. He likes the autocratic system. That's what keeps him in power. That's what keeps his cronies in power. They don't want a full-fledged democracy. They don't want the countries that used to belong to the Soviet Union to be democratic. They want them as part of their sphere of influence. Well, guess what? The only country that can really prevent that is the most powerful country in the world, the United States. And we are the one, we are the country that has stood up for the Eastern European countries to have the right to pick their system of government, and their political allegiances, meaning NATO or the European Union. And so Putin determined at some point in time that he was, well, long ago, it it predates really 2016, but certainly when he came back to power in 2011, he wanted to weaken us. He wanted to weaken our international influence and ultimately divide us as much as possible against one another. Some of that is actually Soviet tactics, as you probably know, um, from your <laughs> long intelligence career back in those days, they would use our racial tensions, you know, use the weaknesses in our society against us. But what they did this time was they used our technology <laughs> to directly get at our citizens, to directly go to African-Americans and say, don't go and vote for Hillary Clinton because she's not on your side, you know, through Facebook, right? And then, of course, they stole information. And in the past, the Soviets would use the information against us privately, but they made it public. They weaponized it politically. So that's just some examples of what they did. Of course, they also approached Trump folks in his campaign and tried to get them to work with them. We don't know the full story of that because Mueller told us some of it, but we don't actually know the whole story. So I assume that you think that this is a huge deal, right? The fact that they attacked our democracy. Absolutely. I called it the political equivalent of 9-11. Yeah. Do the 
folks in your district understand the significance of what the Russians did, or do you have to end up explaining it to them? I think that they, on some level they do. Certainly the ones who are really big supporters of Hillary Clinton feel that somehow she was robbed of the election and that the Russians probably had something to do with it. Do they understand exactly how it might have happened that, for example, Cambridge Analytica had um, information on voters, swing voters, that was then provided through Paul Manafort to the Russian government because he had that that Kilimnik guy who was a known Russian intelligence actor um, as a conduit potentially to the Russian intelligence services. So meaning that important voter data got to the Russians, which could have then been used by them to manipulate Facebook and the other social media. We don't have the fingerprints for all that as far as I know. Um, so do the American, do them, do my, do my voters, do my future constituents understand that? I don't think they understand the granularity of it, but they know something went wrong. Some people have come up to me and in public fora and either privately or publicly asked, are we out of the woods? Should we be worried about this next presidential election? And my answer to that is, uh, we are not out of the woods. The intelligence community told us, you know, that they're actively, the Russians are still actively attacking us. And it's not just the elections. They're sitting on the electric, on electric grids, on water supply grids, on infrastructure. And this is something the intelligence community reported on to the American people. But I, I, I feel somehow has gotten lost that the media is not covering it. And what that is all about is a backup plan. If they want to coerce the United States, they want to keep us out of a conflict, or they want to somehow get their way with us, they can use the the bots that they have in our systems to cut off electricity. I mean, it's pretty extreme, right? We don't expect them to do it because they should be smart enough to know how America responds when we're attacked in that fashion. You mentioned, you know, 9-11 Pearl Harbor. But uh, nevertheless, that's how the Russians operate. So, so I'm sure you thought about this, but if I were the Russians... I'd come after you, right? Well, they do every day. Because, uh, check my Twitter feed. <laughs> because, because you know, you're exactly the kind of person they don't want yeah. in Congress. So do you, do you see any activity on the part of the Russians that's aimed against you? Yes. I mean, as I said, on Twitter all the time, um, there are bots and I'm constantly reporting them. But, you know, what can you do? And some people don't know they're Russian bots. So they're actual people who also tweet, retweet, you know, Russian propaganda. Um Right now, it's very focused on Ukraine and besmirching Ukraine and Biden and all of that. Um, I also worry about hacks. Um, you know, so mm. we're we're very careful in my campaign about our security. We watch everything very carefully, and I and I I'm constantly you know I have a paranoid um, perspective, but rightfully so. So the last big one, and maybe the most important at mm-hmm. the end of the day, is China. Right. You know, for what the world is going to look like. There's probably no more important relationship than the one between Beijing and Washington. Right. And some people have just focused on trade, but I'm sure you agree there's much bigger issues here. So how do you think about what our approach to China should be? Right. So first of all, I would say with China, we have a chance to have a constructive relationship if we're firm and if we stick to international law and international institutions and you know, work hard to shore them up and make it clear to the Chinese that there are rules of the road and they have to abide by them. And that's on trade and that's on uh, issues of sovereignty, issues relating to Hong Kong, Taiwan. So my perspective is 
that the Chinese government, unlike the Russian government, they still think the status quo, the international system, offers them some benefit, right? Because they're not trying to overturn it the way the Russians are. So we should use that to our advantage and make it clear again that they have to play by the rules because they have watched closely how we've allowed Russia to get away with murder, literally, and a whole host of other things, right? So I think on the trade front, I'm glad the president has been firm with China. That's a good thing because they were playing so unfairly in, in the economic arena. But the president also has weakened WTO, which is the place where we will enforce, you know, the international rules of the road on trade. So we need to shore up the international system. We need to make it clear to the Chinese that they have to abide by the law. On issues of sovereignty, so South China Sea, um, the territorial disputes that the Chinese have with their neighbors, there I think we need to be more creative. We need to use more robust democracy because even the United States has been kind of guilty of relying too much on deterrence and the military tool, right, in that, in that conflict in particular when it comes to the South China Sea. We really should co- try to shore up the Hague Tribunal. Right now, the Chinese are in violation, blatant violation of a Hague Tribunal um, decision that came down in favor of the Philippines. Now, the Philippines are also letting the Chinese be in violation of it, but I don't think we should. And so, A lot of it really requires full-on attention, diplomatic attention. We need a secretary of state that will prioritize that in the right way. And I don't think it's possible to succeed with China and and not possible to succeed on so many other national security issues without allies. Correct. You would agree? Yes. And that is, I think, the fundamental mistake this president made. So while I say that I, I think it's a good thing that President Trump took a firm line with China... The mistake he made was then he turned around and, you know, took an took a even firmer line, more hostile line towards, you know, our closest neighbors and trading partners, uh, namely Canada and Mexico, and then our European allies, Japan, South Korea. You know, you don't go into any kind of battle, whether it's economic or military or political, without allies. That's so, our biggest asset. Yeah. So, 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 so maybe talk about, Maybe we can talk about national security capabilities a little bit. So the strength of our military, the strength of our intelligence services, the strength of our diplomatic capabilities, the strength of our development assistance. Seems to me that all of those have eroded over the past couple decades. Would You're in a kind of a funny situation because, because I know you agree with having robust capabilities. Yes. But you're also in a party where... They don't want to spend a lot of money on those things. So how do you square that? Right. Well, so I don't think you have to pick guns or butter. I'm for both. And it doesn't mean that, okay, yes, so we need to redo our taxes so we can pay for both, right? Right now, we capital gains are not taxed appropriately. Right now, the very wealthy, they didn't ask for this Trump tax scam cut. Um, and they got this tax cut. But meanwhile, the middle class took it on the chin, you know, in the blue states. So in my state of New York. Um, it's a real problem for people. They already were suffering under the burden of um, high taxes. And and this the, what President Trump did with his, I call it a tax scam legislation, um, really ha- is hurting them every day. So we need to address the, the budget, right? That's how you get more money into the Treasury. And then I think the issue is to be smart about where you spend money on defense, for example. We have a lot of expensive legacy systems. By legacy, I mean big, you know, airplanes and ships that um, are old. And, you know, we we need to think more creatively about 
first of all, obviously making sure we have access to the newer models and making sure the prices are fair, but then also dealing with asymmetric threats because they're the ones that Russia is using to attack us. So if we don't have better cyber capabilities, all of our, you know, tanks and aircraft carriers are not going to protect us from a cyber attack. And in fact, those those platforms will be more at risk because they're becoming also increasingly automated. So cyber defenses don't cost as much. Um, we need to put more money into those. The other thing is, I really think when you talk about the weakening of those communities, intelligence community, defense community, diplomatic um, and development, what I think we're really talking about first and foremost is the weakening of morale, the weakening of you know the loss of experience personnel because they were hounded politically under this administration. You know, what happened in with regard to this Ukraine, you know, bribery scandal that the president unleashed upon all of us resulted in, you know, very excellent, as we saw on television, foreign service officers being attacked and they're senior and everyone below them is watching. And so I think the biggest problem is that leadership, I mean, what a president and the president's cabinet are supposed to do is provide leadership, it boosts morale. And it's that is a really important resource in and of itself. So Evelyn, let me maybe finish up here with two questions. The first is, how do you bring people together? Right? How do you bring Americans together at a time when you actually need to, politically, you need to attack the president to win the primary that you're fighting, right? So how do you how do you do both of those things at the same time? I think you appeal to what people care about day to day. Again, I mentioned taxes. I mentioned the environment. People want to work together on these things. They they are happy to work across the aisle as well. I mean, initially you do have to though. You know, take have a political fight. You have to have a political debate. You have to make very clear that there is climate change. That all the scientists in the climate change field agree, 100% of them, that there's, you know, human-caused climate change, that we're facing a crisis, and we have to act now or yesterday. So I think we do need to be blunt and we do need to speak clearly. But when we talk about what to do, I mean, there is a way to do it, I suppose, if, if, if people want to deny what caused the climate change, you can still work with them to address it, right? So I can see myself going to Congress and dealing with people on the other side of the aisle who still refuse to believe, you know, uh, the, the science behind climate, the climate crisis, but might still be concerned because the water level is rising in their communities as well. Yeah. And then the last question is running for office and sticking to your values. I know mm-hmm. that you are a person of deep integrity, but I want to tell you a little bit about my experience. I, I did a few media events for the Clinton campaign and, you know, I, I would talk to the media and I really deeply believed that she would have made a great commander in chief and certainly better, yeah. a better commander in chief than Donald Trump. And so I said that and I believed it. But I also at the very same time felt pressure mm. to to spin a little bit, to kind of go beyond the facts. And, you know, I really tried to fight that, but I found in the middle of a heated campaign that that is difficult to do. And I know that you're a person of integrity. Do you feel that same kind of pressure? Um, yes. So sometimes, you know, you have political advisors and they'll tell you, um, our position is this. And then I'll say, no, no, wait a minute. <laughs> What's my position? You know, 
and you can give me options, right? Um, but w- number one, I may actually have a f- really firm view on X, Y, or Z. Um, I may be open to hearing options, but ultimately it's my position. You know, I'm not putting forward some position that the party has decided should be my position. So I think, I think that's the beauty of being, you know, 52 years old and running for office. You know, I think when I was younger, it would have been harder to resist it. And if you, if you know who you are inside your soul, you know, then it's easier to resist. And I'm sure though, that there will be moments where I'll have to, you know, check and say, wait a minute, wait a minute, you know, over and over again, probably, um, you know, I'm just starting this and I feel very clearly about what I believe. Um, and I think bearing that in mind, but it's, it's easier when you're more mature, when you already have a strong sense of self and what you believe in. Evelyn, thank you so much for joining us. <laughs> thank you, Michael. That was Evelyn Farkas. I'm Michael Morell. Please join us next week for another episode of Intelligence Matters. This has been the Intelligence Matters podcast with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morell. Brought to you by Lockheed Martin. Your mission is ours. The podcast is produced by Olivia Gassis, Jamie Benson, and Jake Rosen. If you haven't already, subscribe, rate, and review wherever you download podcasts. You can follow the show on Twitter at Intel Matters Pod and follow Michael at Michael J. Morell. Intelligence Matters is a production of CBS News Radio. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God, this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, early and ad-free on Wondery Plus.